Hello, Hope City Church. It's good to see you today. Hello to everybody in our family service room watching right now. Everybody online, so many of you watching online and then obviously here in our main auditorium. Uh, it's good to be together. So many different places, but technology allows us to be together. And so, uh, yeah, just hello. My name is Jason. I'm the pastor here. And um, we are starting this brand new series uh, today, and we're going to be doing this for the next few weeks called Truish, Truish. And uh, I'm, I'm honestly really excited about the next few weeks because we're going to talk about some common but dangerous ideas that have the potential to destroy your faith. I'm not overstating that. I really believe that, the importance of this. Um, but what makes these ideas, these beliefs so dangerous is the fact that they are so common. As we begin to talk through some of these ideas and beliefs that are true-ish, I think probably for a lot of us in the room, it may be a little disorienting uh, to find out that, that it's not true or, that, or that, that it's false and that it is dangerous to, to your life. Probably for a lot of us in the room, it's not that we decided one day to believe things that are false. It's not that we decided one day, you know what, I'm gonna believe untrue things. They were either handed to us or we absorbed them from everything happening around us. And uh, I believe these next few weeks, if we will um, lean in, lean into the Holy Spirit, lean into God's word, uh, he's gonna help us to realize the truth about so many things uh, in our lives. And, and the next few weeks is crucial because the biggest threat to your faith is not bad behavior, it's bad beliefs. The biggest threat to your faith is not bad behavior, it's bad beliefs. You're gonna hear us say this a lot because it's true. And it's a little counterintuitive to what maybe we believe about religion. Depending on your affiliation with religion, how you were raised or who raised you, you, you may have gotten the idea that what God cares about most is your behavior. Maybe you got the idea that Christians are most distinguished by their behavior, but that's, that's not true and that's not what the Bible teaches. And the behavior matters. Behavior is the result. It's the fruit of what's happening in our heart. But bad beliefs is way more dangerous than, than bad behavior. And I don't know how much you've read the New Testament, but if you've spent much time reading the New Testament, here's what you find is that there's not as much in the New Testament about behavior as there is about beliefs. The, the, the apostles, the disciples who walked with Jesus and then, and then the church was born and these guys are uh, in charge of the church. They're the leaders of the church. They spend the rest of their lives writing these letters, uh, building these churches, providing oversight for these churches. And their main concern is what the Christians believe. It's what they believe. It's what they're standing on, holding on to and what they're potentially falling for or what they are potentially walking away from. And so as you read through the New Testament and the letters of these disciples and apostles over and over and over and over and over again, you see them saying things like, stand firm, stand firm, hold on to the truth, don't fall away, don't give in, don't believe everything that you hear. These are the kind of things that they're saying. I'll just give you one example. There's lots of examples like this, but Galatians 1, 6 and 7, this is what the apostle Paul said. The apostle Paul said, I'm shocked 
that you, talking to these early Christians, he says, I'm shocked that you're turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. Now listen to this. He says, you are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth. I believe that a lot of us in the room are being fooled by people or ideas that, that, that twist the truth. And that's what this series is about. It's about what, what seems like good news, but is not good news at all. Now, this is not a 20-year-old idea or 20-year-old problem. It may feel as if the church is under attack more than ever, but it's not. It may feel as if beliefs or doctrine or ideas or theology is under attack, but this is not a new idea that even from the moment that Jesus Christ left the earth, there have been different uh, true-ish ideas floating around. Even in the first century, uh, as the apostles and, and the next generation, second and third generation of church leaders are, are trying to lead the church, even then they were passionately uh, trying to defend the, the good news of the gospel or the good news, the beliefs, the doctrine, the theology of, of, of the church. There, there was one guy, his name was Irenaeus, and he was famous uh, famous for his ability to defend the faith. He, his legend, or what made him, one of the things that made him so famous was he was the last known living connection to the original apostles. It was said that he had heard uh, the, the disciple, the apostle John teach. And so he already had a little bit of acclaim and clout to him, but he also was incredibly literate and, and able to defend the faith so beautifully. And he wrote several books and, and, and letters, but his most famous book was a book just called Heresies. It was about the different uh, true-ish bad beliefs that were floating around out there. And this is what he said. This is first century. This goes back, you know, 100, 150, 200 years after Jesus resurrected and ascended to heaven. This is what Irenaeus said. He said, error indeed is never set forth in its naked deformity, lest being thus exposed, it should not at once be detected but it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress so as by its outward form to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. Now, what does that mean? In essence, what Irenaeus is saying is that bad beliefs don't show up wearing a sign that says this is a bad belief. Dangerous ideas don't show up with a name tag that says dangerous beliefs. They look good. They sound good. They feel good. And if we're not careful or if we're inexperienced or if we don't know what God says, it can seem more true than truth it, itself. So, so how do we know if something's a truth or a lie? How did these early Christians, remember the early Christians didn't even have the New Testament. It wasn't for another 400 years, 340 or so years before the New Testament was put together. So how did they distinguish the truth from a lie? How do we distinguish the truth from a lie? Well, in that same book, Irenaeus said that there are three pillars, we could say three filters that the first century Christians used to decide if something was a truth or a lie. And this is what, this is what he said. He said, we use the scriptures the Old Testament, because they didn't have the New Testament. He said, we use the scriptures, 
We use the traditions handed down from the apostles and we use the teaching of the apostles' successors. So we use the Old Testament. We use what the disciples who walked with Jesus said and then we use the teaching of the people that those disciples trained. Now we have the New Testament. We have a complete Bible that that was put together. So we could take what Irenaeus said and we could kind of modernize it a little bit. I think it would be fair to paraphrase it like this. If we're wanting to know if something is a truth or a lie, our filter is, did Jesus teach it? Did Jesus model it? And does the church accept it? Did Jesus teach it? Did Jesus model it? And does the church accept it? And what I just described to you about Jesus teaching, modeling, and the church accepting is what became known as orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the beliefs of the church and practicing Christians that are passed down through generations. And this is why I'm really excited and passionate about this series because I think it's important that you know, I don't know how many of you know this, but it's important that you know that as Christians, we don't decide truth a generation at a time. We don't get together as a team, as a church and go, you know, for these next 30 years, what do we want to believe is true and not true? As Christians and as a church, big C church, church at large, truth is passed down generation after generation after generation. It's not determined, you know, 20 years at a time. It's it's something that has stood for thousands of years. We pass it down. Now, have Christians in the church gotten things wrong over the years? Absolutely. I mean, right off the top of my head, the crusades and slavery come to mind. Not that all Christians were uh, for slavery. Many Christians were not. But even along history, when you find times when the church was on the wrong side, it wasn't because the truth changed. It was because we got away from Jesus's teaching, Jesus's modeling, we got away from the scriptures. We were on the wrong side of truth. And so my, my prayer for this series is that the Holy Spirit will make the truth clear, but that he will also make lies clear too. We want the truth to be clear, but we want lies to be clear too. Because the Bible says that the truth will set you free. But when you believe a lie, the truth sets you free like you've been sitting in the dark and somebody flips a light switch on. The truth is blinding. When you've been believing a lie, the truth sets you free like you're drowning and you're fighting off the person trying to save you out of panic. The truth does set you free, but usually it makes you angry or breaks your heart first. And then the freedom comes. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into the first week in this first belief that is true-ish. Can we pray together? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, I pray that, that today and the weeks to come, God, that you would make the truth clear. But God, you would make the lies that we believe clear as well. And that God, the truth would be that light switch. The truth would be that lifeguard. The truth would be that thing that pulls us out of the darkness or the deep that we are sinking in. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right. So what are some of these truest beliefs? Well, we're going to look at them each week. But for this first week, we're going to start with what I believe is the most prevalent and dangerous belief or idea that is 
out there as a culture or as a society, maybe in our homes. And here is the first common belief we're going to look at that you're wrong to tell me I'm wrong. You're wrong to tell me I'm wrong. Maybe you've said this before. Maybe you've had it said to you. It can be said a lot of different ways, but the general idea is that right and wrong are determined by the person doing them and not by a universal standard of right and wrong. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Well, there's a name for this. It's called relativism. We're going to be looking at a lot of isms over the next a uh, few weeks, but this is called relativism. Now, let me give you the technical definition of relativism. Relativism is the belief that truth and right and wrong can only be judged in relation to other things and that nothing can be true or right in all situations. Let me paraphrase it like this. Relativism is the belief that truth is relative. And if truth is relative, then you're wrong to tell me I'm wrong because you don't get to decide what's true for me and I don't get to decide what's true for you and you don't get to decide what's wrong for me and I don't get to decide what's wrong for you. Now, does that sound more familiar, right? And not only is this prevalent in society and culture, but it's, it's becoming more and more prevalent in the church. Barner Research, who does a lot of Christian uh, research, recently put out a study that said that 23% of Christians strongly agree with this statement that what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. One out of four Christians strongly agree with the statement that what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. That's relativism. Now, why does this sound so good? Because let's be honest, it sounds good. It feels good. There's so much about this that we want to be True. Why, why does this sound so good? Well, off the top of my head, the first reason I think it sounds good is because we want freedom. If right and wrong is relative, then I'm free from the expectations, shame and guilt. I can, I'm free to be me. I can, I can be who I want to be. And I'm not bound by any standard of anybody else. Free freedom. That's what, that's what I think will happen. But, but have, you, have you ever known somebody who was determined to be free from all expectations and opinions of others, but in reality, they were, they were a slave to the expectations and opinions of others? They became a slave individuality, right? So we think, think that we can get, get rid of standards, be free, free but we actually become a slave to, to freedom. Another, another reason I would say that, that this is good is because, because we've met mean Christians and nobody's a mean Christian. And if right and wrong are relative, then, then, then you know, you can't be judge, judgmental, you can't be offensive, and you can't keep turning people off to, to, to Jesus because they, they would be a Christian, but they met, met that Christian one time, and they're mean, and someone anything to, anything to do with them. And if right and wrong are relative, then there's no more mean Christians, right? But I think probably the best reason we, we want this to be true, and I... You know, I, I feel this, you probably feel this. I would say the biggest reason we probably want this to be true is because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to offend people. Every person in this room has someone you love that is doing something that goes against God's standard of right and wrong. And you feel this tension, you feel this angst to, to, to do you bring it up? Do you say anything? You're not perfect. You don't want to feel like you're judging them. And, but, but you know that it's, it's wrong. 
And hey, if, if, there, if, if truth is relative and there's no right and wrong, then you don't have to bring it up because they're fine, you're fine. Let them do them, you do you. Man, that sounds amazing. Everybody do your own thing. We can coexist so much better, less anger, less violence, more coexisting. But we know this is not true. We know that we're not coexisting better. We're not less violent or less angry. At, at, a, at a basic level, at a first hearing, this sounds better than truth. It's better than, it's truer than true. And if you know someone who maybe grew up in a traditional Christian environment and has, has picked up this type of theology, they describe it in a way almost like it's enlightenment as if they have somehow discovered something that you haven't discovered. But if you could ever discover what they've discovered, you would experience freedom and not be bound by that old religious way. But in a matter of about five seconds, if we really lift up the rock, if we really kind of look beneath the surface, we can see that this idea of right and wrong, not being absolute doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now, the first reason that it doesn't work is because it can't stand on itself. Now, we don't, we don't have time to talk about this, but if there is no absolute right and wrong, then I can't be wrong for telling you you're wrong. So that'll put you in a cycle of brain cramps right there. You just stick with that one for a while, but let's move past that one, okay? And, and get kind of to the, the bigger issue that as much as we want this to be true and as much as we say, maybe we believe this, the reality is no one in this room actually believes that statement. Even if you think you believe it, you don't believe it. You don't believe it. Because if, if right and wrong are, are relative, if there's no universal standard of right and wrong, if you believe that, then what you are saying you believe is that Mother Teresa was no more morally right or wrong than Hitler because Hitler did what he felt was true. Mother Teresa did what she felt was true. And it would be wrong to tell either one of them that they're wrong. We could do this all day. You tell me you believe that truth is in the heart and the eye of the belief of the person. And I would say, okay, well, what about slavery? Is slavery wrong? You would say, well, yeah, I mean, slavery is definitely wrong. I say, why? Why is slavery wrong? Is, is it wrong for everybody? Yes. No one should treat anybody that way. Why? What about sex trafficking? Is that wrong? You said, of course that's wrong. I said, why? Why is that wrong? Is that wrong for everybody? Should anybody be allowed to do that? You say, no, nobody should be allowed to do that. That's awful. And I would say, well, why? Why? Why do you believe that? Where did you get that from? And you'd say, okay, well, I see you're being sneaky. You're being tricky. Here's why I would say that that's wrong. Maybe you would say to me, that's wrong because that hurts people. And I would say back to you, so you believe hurting people is wrong. Well, yeah, everybody agrees hurting people is wrong. That's not true. Everybody doesn't believe hurting people is wrong. So why are you right? You'd say, okay, well, no, it's not. It's not that even though hurting people should be... It's illegal. That's why it's wrong. And I would say to you, so you believe that doing things that are illegal are wrong. And you'd say, yeah. And I'd say, why? Why do you believe that's wrong? you say, everybody believes doing something illegal is wrong. <laughs> Have you been paying attention? <laughs> everybody doesn't believe doing illegal things is wrong. See, at some point, 
No one truly believes that each person gets to decide right or wrong for themselves. We all have a standard. And if we can agree in this moment right now, and maybe you don't agree, but if you do agree that everyone has a standard, then this is the point where I would say that as Christians, people whose faith is in Jesus Christ, our standard for right and wrong is the Bible. It's the Bible. Now, let's, I want to be clear, crystal clear. I believe Jason Isaacs, Pastor Jason Isaacs believes and Hope City Church believes that everyone would be better off living according to the standards of the Bible. Every person, whether you're a Christian or not, we believe every person would be better off living according to the standards of the Bible. But we also believe that the Bible teaches that sinners sin. And the Bible says that non-believing people are not open to Jesus. The Bible says that their hearts are hardened. It says that the eyes of their hearts are blinded. They, the spirit, they, they have not opened their hearts or their mind to, to Jesus. So they don't believe what we believe about, about the Bible. So I and we don't believe that it is our job to make non-believing people live according to biblical standards. Does that make sense, everybody? Now, it's okay to wish they would. It's okay to vote for people who may pass laws that would institute some of those biblical standards. That's okay too. It's okay to give your non-believing friends biblical advice. That's okay too. But obeying the Bible is what Christians do because of our faith in Jesus, not to meet a certain standard or to earn good standing or to have a badge or to be superior. So I wanna be very clear about this. Doing the things that this Bible says does not make you a Christian. So if you convinced people who did not have a faith in Jesus to do what this Bible says, we believe that life would be better. This life, this society, this culture would be better because God's way works. But obeying what is in the Bible does not make someone a Christian. Faith in Jesus as the savior that we need to have a relationship with God is what makes someone a Christian. So, so obeying the Bible doesn't make you a Christian, but... Christians obey the Bible. Are you still with me out there? So if it's not true that you're wrong to tell me that I'm wrong, what is true? If right and wrong isn't relative, what is what's true? Well, the truth is that God created the world and he gave us a way to live with clearly defined right and wrong decisions. And that we as individuals and that we as a society should live according to God's standards, God's standards of right and wrong, but we don't. As Christians, we fail and we fall as a society and as a culture, we fail and fall. But remember, bad behavior is not the biggest threat to your faith. So you will fall. You will behave badly. You will do things you're not supposed to do. That's not the biggest threat to your faith. It's bad beliefs. So beyond falling and failing, when we begin to believe differently than what God says is right and wrong is when things begin to go really badly. What happens when, when we begin to change that belief? What happens when we get away from God's standard of right and wrong as a society, as a country, as a home, as a city, 
what happens? Well, the good news is we don't have to guess. We don't have to guess because we have an example in the Bible that shows us exactly what happens. There is an entire book in the Old Testament that is written to show us what happens when a group of people decide that there is no absolute standard of right and wrong. It's the book of Judges. It's 21 chapters. So many famous Bible stories in there. You know, Gideon, maybe you've heard of that. Samson uh, is in there. Um, there. There's a couple more. My mind just went blank. But there are about four or five probably famous childhood uh, stories, Bible stories you've heard in there. But what you notice in Judges is it's 400 years of a civilization, 400 years of a society. And what you notice is because they begin to change what they believe about right and wrong, every chapter it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So much so that by the time you get to chapter 17, it's bizarre. Like you're reading it and you're like, is this a sci-fi movie? Like, I'm confused as to how a human being could even think these things, do these things, say these things. And the author, we don't know who wrote the book of Judges. Historically, we don't know who wrote it, but we know that the author was making the point that this is what happens to a world that believes that right and wrong is whatever individuals believe is right and wrong. Now chapters 19, 20, and 21 are so disgusting. We're going to read a little bit of it. I can't read all of it. We don't have time. And some of it's too insensitive for like a public setting. But I would encourage you to go home and read Judges chapter 19, 20, and 21 when you have some time because it's the end. It's the culmination of the book. And it's kind of the the peak chaos and confusion of a society with no absolute right and wrong. And we're going to read just a little bit of it. But at the beginning of chapter 19, there's a man who decides he wants to have a wife. And so he goes and gets a concubine, according to Judges 19. He brings her home. He marries her. It doesn't go well. A couple months in, she leaves. She goes to her father's house. She stays there for a couple of months when the man decides he wants to go get his wife back. So he goes to his father-in-law's house. He wants to take her home. The father-in-law invites him in and says, hey, why don't you have you know, dinner with me. He stays for dinner. He stays a couple of nights and they have dinner. And finally, a couple of days later, he says, we've got to get back home. And so him and his wife leave. They try to get back home, but they can't make it home in one day's travel. Back in that time, it was incredibly dangerous to be traveling at night. And so they go into this town and they're in the center of town and they need a place to stay, but they don't have a place to stay. And an older man shows up and offers his home to stay there. And so they agree and they go and they're having dinner at this man's house. And in Judges chapter 19, starting at verse 22, these, this husband and wife are at this man's, this host's house. And this is what it says. It says, while they were enjoying themselves, a crowd of troublemakers from the town surrounded the house and they began beating at the door and shouting to the old man, bring out the man who is staying with you so we can have sex with him. The old man stepped outside to talk to them. No, my brothers, don't do such an evil thing. For this man is a guest in my house and such a thing would be shameful. Here, he said in verse 24, take my virgin daughter and this man's concubine. I will bring them out to you and you can abuse them and do whatever you like. But don't do such a shameful thing to this man. But they wouldn't listen. So the Levite took hold of his concubine and pushed her out the door. And the men of the town abused her all night, taking turns raping her until morning. Finally, at dawn, they let her go. 
At daybreak, the woman returned to the house where her husband was staying, and she collapsed at the door of the house and lay there until it was light. And when the husband opened the door to leave, there lay his concubine with her hands on the threshold. He said, get up, let's go. There was no answer. She was dead. So he put her body on his donkey and took her home. And when he got home, he took a knife and cut his concubine's body into 12 pieces. And then he sent one piece to each tribe throughout the territory of Israel. And everyone who saw it said such a horrible crime has not been committed in all the time since Israel left Egypt. What are we going to do? I don't want to rush past what we just read because I know for some of you there's trauma because you have experienced abuse like this. There was someone in your life who believed something that was evil and wrong was acceptable and did what you did. But we see here 19 chapters into a society that has no standard, absolute standard of right and wrong. We see despicable, disgusting, evil things done by people who see nothing wrong with it. And so they feel like something needs to be done. They get some leaders together. They decide they've got to attack the Benjamites. The Benjamites was where this crime happened. And so they go and they have a civil war and 40,000 of the Israelites are killed. 25,000 of the Benjamites are killed. They come back together. They decide to attack again. They go into this town. They kill all the women. They kill all the children. It's all gone. They burn down all the houses. Then they start feeling bad because they say, well, now we've destroyed these people. 600 of the Benjamite men are left. No wives, no children, no homes. And so they're saying, they say to themselves, what are we going to do to right this situation? Maybe we overreacted a little bit. Proven that they had already been phenomenal decision makers, obviously. They decide, here's what we'll do. We'll tell the 600 Benjamite men to go to the next town over because they're having a celebration over there. And we'll give them permission to go kidnap any woman they want and bring her home. And she'll have to be his wife. So if I were to say to you, hey, what would you think about a society where men could force women to be married to them, do whatever they wanted to them, whole towns wanted to abuse same sex, heterosex, dismembering bodies, civil wars, kidnapping. If I were to say to you like, does that sound okay to you? You would say no. And I would say why? Why is that wrong? What, 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 what's wrong with it? You would say, no, that is, that's wrong. And you would say, how could it ever get like that? How could it ever get that bad? Well, the last few verses, Judges 21 verse 23 says, so the men of Benjamin did as they were told. Each man caught one of the women as she danced and carried her off to be his wife. And they returned to their own land, rebuilt their, li their lives. Israel departed, verse 24. And verse 25, it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Look at this. And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. 
We, we see a society 400 years in the making, which by the way, the USA is still in the 200s, but we see a society 400 years in the making when people decide, I'll decide what's right for me and you decide what's right for you. We see something that we read and we go, how in the world? Now I know some of you are thinking, Jason, that's a little extreme. That's a ridiculous story. I mean, you chose the worst case example to try and, and, and make your point. It's not that bad. It would never get that bad. And that's what they said too. They said in chapter 19, they said, it, it, we've never seen anything like this. And we would say, you know what? We've done some bad things and we're not awesome, but we would never do that. It would never get that bad. We're not in that bad of shape. And I would just say, really? Really? I'm not a doom and gloom guy. I'm actually very much not a doom and gloom guy. But this past week, I, I just said, you know, how much, how far off are we from what we just read? I grabbed a couple of headlines. I know you can't always trust headlines, but kind of clickbaity, but I, I just grabbed a couple of headlines in the last week from the world around us. Here's one. Last week, a man from Kentucky killed a woman and then took her body parts in a suitcase to visit his family in Indiana. You say, how could he do that? That's so wrong. Maybe not to him. Last week, Netflix released a movie about the sexuality of 11-year-old girl dancers. The show features sexual behavior of pre-adolescent girls and full nudity of girls acting as if they are underage. You can watch it on your TV. And you would say, how could someone think that's okay? Well, they, they do. They'll tell you why, just ask them. This past week in California, a judge ruled that judges could have the discretion to lessen the penalty for men who sodomize boys under the age of 14. And there were other stipulations in that case about fairness with sexuality. And I, I get all that, but the law states now that a judge can rule that sodomy is not as bad as other kinds of sodomy, depending on the age of a child. And you would say, how could a judge think that? He has his reasons. This past week, an unidentified man walked up to two Los Angeles police officers in cold blood and attempted to assassinate them. And you say, how could somebody think that it's okay to grab a gun and walk up to police officers and just pull the trigger? How could anybody think that's right? And just ask him. He has his reasons. In his mind, it's okay. This past week, Abortions in the United States hit an all-time low. So there's some good news. Only 11,989 unborn babies were killed by a medical doctor. And you think, how could someone want to choose that profession for their life to, to, to kill unborn babies? They have a reason. Ask them. And whether you agree with everything I read and some of those you're on the fence on and you don't know, my point is this, is that if there is no right and wrong, a universal standard of right and wrong, then nothing I just read is wrong. They can do whatever they want. And you shouldn't judge them and you shouldn't make them feel guilty and you don't need to worry about it because 
they get to decide. But everybody in this room knows that's not right. Because when God breathed life into your lungs as a human being, he put the Holy Spirit inside of you. And there is a a compass in there. And it may be off track right now, but there's still a compass in there from the Holy Spirit that in some way we know that we are getting away from the way that our creator designed it to be. And what's happened to us as people and as a society is that we idolize freedom so much that we are like fish arguing that we should be allowed out of the water. Stop constraining me. That's not freedom, that's death. We need a king, the king is God and we need to shape our lives around the truth of God. So what do we do? Well, I want to read you one more scripture and then I'm going to challenge you with a, a question. But Romans 12, 9, really should be a live verse, honestly. It's an amazing, short, little, punchy verse with three really powerful commands in it. Romans 12, 9, it says, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. That's the first command. And that's a good one. We could stop right there. The purpose of what we're saying today is not for you to be more angry you to be more judgmental, you to treat people worse. He says, before we get to the other two things I'm about to tell you, because you may get excited about the next one, but before we get to that one, I want you to really love people. Then he says, hate what is wrong. Now you can't hate what's wrong unless there is a wrong. He says, I want you to really love people and I want you to hate what is wrong and I want you to hold tightly to what is good because you better hold tightly because every day that you live, people are going to be prying, trying to pry your fingers off what you're holding so tightly to, the truth and the standard of God for your life. So what do you think would happen to us as a society? What do you think would happen to us as a church, as a city, as a culture, as a neighborhood, if we said, we're gonna be committed to Romans 12, nine. We're gonna really love people. We're gonna hate what's wrong. We're not gonna hate people. We're gonna hate what's wrong. And we're gonna hold tightly to what is good. And as we end this, the easiest thing in the world to do would be to think about someone else, some other culture, some other society, some world out there, talk about what's wrong with those people. That's how you get elected. You know, you talk about what's wrong with those people. I don't wanna talk about those people or that world. I wanna talk about us. And I wanna challenge you and I wanna challenge me. So I'm gonna ask you three questions. If your growth group starts this week, you'll have a chance to talk about these some more in your growth group. But Three questions that are personal for you and for me, not society, not culture. This is you and me in your life. Three questions that will help you to to realize if you are holding tightly to the right and wrong of God's standards, or if you're beginning to believe the lie that truth is relative. Number one, first question. When you're trying to decide what's right and wrong, making a decision, when you're trying to decide what's right and wrong, what do you trust more? your feelings, your friends, or the Bible. Like you're wrestling with something. You need to make a decision. You're wondering what's true. What do you trust more? Do you open your Bible? Do you talk to your friends? Or do you just go with your heart? Second question. 
Is there an area of your life that you know in your heart is wrong, but you've changed your beliefs to relieve the guilt that you feel? See, we're not wired to wake up every day and look in the mirror and hate ourselves. So we're either gonna change what we're doing or we're gonna change what we believe, but we will not keep believing the same and look in the mirror and hate ourselves every day. So is there something in your life that, that you're doing that you know is wrong? And so you've allowed wanting that to shape and change what it is that you believe is right and wrong? Third question. Have you begun to doubt the truth of the Bible because someone you love wants to do something that God says is wrong? Have you begun to doubt the truth of the Bible because someone you love wants to do something God says is wrong? See, you can say you believe something until someone you love with all your heart wants to do something that is opposite of what you say you believe. That's when you decide what you believe. And if we're not careful, we will allow our love for people to cause us to look at the Bible and say, I mean, I don't know if it means that exactly. I don't think God would actually want us to, God wouldn't want someone. And we start shaping our beliefs based on our love for a person instead of our love for God and God's word. So have you begun to doubt the truth of the Bible because someone you love wants to do something that the Bible, that God says is wrong? If you would say yes to the, two, the last two questions, or if you didn't answer the Bible on one, you're not alone. We are all trying to hold firmly to what is true, but we will not be able to wrap our arms around the truth until we admit that maybe we have our arms wrapped around a lie. And my prayer for you and for me today and for the weeks to come is the truth would set us free but it's probably gonna make us angry and break our hearts first. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that when you knew I would have no way to get to you and when you knew that I would not be able to do enough good things or build a good enough life to be saved, you sent Jesus the savior that I need to give me a way to know you. You knew I would fall. You knew I would wander away. You knew I would believe things that aren't true. You knew that I would wanna blend in and give in to the world around me, but you didn't give up on me. You loved me so much, you sent Jesus to give me a way to have a relationship with you. And so God, I pray for every person who hears my voice right now, who's listening to my voice and the Holy Spirit is maybe convicting some things in their life that, that, that they've been drifting from truth. They, they've, been, they've been believing some things that, that, that are not true because, because of pressure or love or emotion or misinformation. God, I pray that the truth would set us free and that you would break us away from the lies that are destroying our faith and our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.